Well, once again, I have to wear many hats and many things that kind of slow me down and hinder me. Um, my voice is feeling much better, so I've, it was 53 minutes last time, right? I think I'll be able to go for a couple hours this time. <laughs> we're going to, since Pastor Jeremy mentioned something last week, we're going to do it David Brainerd style. They would have church for a couple hours in the morning, preaching, and then catechism, and then lunch, and then catechism, and then more preaching. So it's like a whole day of standing and listening to a guy talk. So do you please stand and gonna, just for the effect. This morning we're going to be in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And if you have a, a Bible from the pew in front of you, that'll be on page 983. And since it's kind of the beginning of <clears throat> the book in the pew Bible, there won't be a page number, so you'll have to be, um, kind of use logic and find 982, and it's the page next to it. Um, As you turn your Bibles there, let me pray and ask God to bless this time in his word. Lord, it is no small thing to come before you here this morning and open my mouth. It's no small thing to, to study your word and to bring a message to your people and say it's from you. And so I ask God that you would bless me, that you would anoint my mind, that you would anoint my lips, and that you would anoint the minds of those who are here listening in the congregation, Lord, to hear you speak. We pray that, they, that your spirit would filter our hearts and our thoughts and our mouths as we are here listening to your word, listening about the truth in your word hopefully talking about it after the service with one another, List, listening to it. I'm going to be speaking about it right now, and so we need your spirit to do that, Lord, or else we're completely lost. You've made us each priests in this great people of God, Lord. There are no um, special places for special revelation, no people who are um, who have more of the Spirit than others. And yet, Lord, you've given me this great privilege and responsibility to teach your word to this congregation this morning. So please bless this time and please speak to us, Lord. In your Son's name we pray, amen. Now, last week, uh, after adult discipleship hour, I had a really encouraging conversation with somebody and this person, like myself, was not, did not grow up believing. I became a Christian when I was 19 years old, freshman in college, and it was really a life-changing experience, right? Which sounds kind of stupid to say that, right? Because it, it should always, that's what you should be thinking. To go from darkness to light should be life-altering and life-changing, now, for others who maybe grow up in a Christian home, 
They grow like Noah is growing up, my son down in pre-stars, right, right now, he's learning about God. He comes and tells me in the car on the way home, wow, daddy, I know so much about God. God is, he, Jesus is the king and he's stronger than any other king and all the other kings are not as good as him and he, he knows something, right? That's, that's a good thing. I'm so glad he's down there learning. And yet there has to come a point in his life where he will make a decision to follow Jesus. If, if that doesn't happen, then he won't be a Christian. Now again, for others, it's, you know, I, I know a guy who was tearing a page out of a Gideon Bible in a hotel to roll a joint with it. And he just broke down, read the Bible, and he got saved, right? His life went from terribly awful person, one of the most despicable people in the world, right, to child of God. That's amazing, right? For others, you maybe grew up in this church. I don't know. Um, Your behavior may not have changed all that much if you were a child when you were saved, um, and yet your heart had to have changed. You, at some point, God had to have shown you that you needed to repent of your sin and you needed to walk in obedience. Even if that you seem to be obeying before, something has to change. So what we're going to talk about this morning from Colossians chapter 1 is... It's, it's sort of vague. Paul doesn't give in these verses any like strict or easily discernible commands. He doesn't say, don't lie, don't steal, don't do this, do this. But we can pull some things out of these verses that are going to help us do just that, obey God. And it's not going to be exactly what we think. So let me start by reading The text here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The first thing that I notice when I look at these verses is that Paul appeals to the past. So we're going to talk about reconciliation this morning and sort of its relation to past, present, and future. So in the past, the Colossians were alienated and hostile in mind. Alienated, it was as if they were foreigners. They didn't belong to God's people. They didn't belong to God. Um, So they're separate, separated, different. Had nothing to do with God's people. We see that this separation wasn't only, it wasn't just ethnic, like in Ephesians um, When Paul talks about breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, um, that's one way that Christ has taken away this alienation and separation is between ethnic peoples, right? In the church of God, there's no distinction between a Moroccan Christian um, and an American Christian 
or a Jewish Christian, uh, you know, a Messianic Jew Christian, an ethnic Jew Christian, and me, who's not that. So they're, they're separate and they're, they're wholly corrupted. So we see that they're hostile in mind, right? They're, they're different, they're separated from the people of God and how they think and also in how they act. So we can see that this is a separation that is complete, right? There's no part of these people that has anything to do with God. And yet, what does God do? He sends his son in verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So even if their original state was separate, outside of the the people of God, far from the promises of God, God steps in and sends his son, and he says that his son has reconciled them, and he's done it in an amazing way, right? Um, He didn't just send him as sort of a missionary to say, okay, you guys, I know you've been out, you can come in now. This isn't football on the playground where, you know, the cool kids finally decide, okay, well, I guess we need an 11th man, so we'll finally invite the nerdy kid to come play football with us. It's not like that. He dies. God himself goes, and he reconciles these people who are his, his enemies. Like we, we often hear um, pastors say that God was saving us from his wrath, right? He shed his own blood to pay for his own wrath. So infinite wrath poured on the only one who could handle that infinite wrath is Jesus Christ, God's own son. But one other thing that struck me, and this is really what I was talking about with, with somebody after, I won't say his name just because he might be a little shy, I don't know, but it's really encouraging conversation. Um, was this aspect of, okay, while in the past we were dead in our sins, like Ephesians 2 says, we're separated, alienated, like Paul says here in Colossians. The tense of the verb that Paul uses here, he says, you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body and flesh. So, has now reconciled. We sort of just read over these things and think, okay, yeah, we're reconciled now. But it's a finished thing, right? If, I, if somebody asks me, have you eaten? I say, yeah, I've eaten. Does that mean that I actually ate? It's done, right? That action is over. And with reconciliation, it's sealed. It's not just a one-time thing. Okay, a little reconciliation right now. It's not like a snack, like when you eat. To be reconciled is to be restored. So God sees these people who are his enemies, right? They're sinners. And he goes to them to offer peace. And not only does he offer peace, but he pays for it. He buys it. He reconciles them through the shed blood of Jesus, the broken body of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate after the preaching. So we can see that the past state of these people is separate from God, alienated. The present and past state is they're reconciled now, right? And they're, it's a finished event, so in a sense, it's sort of past. 
Um, but he can say he has reconciled that you are reconciled. We see that in the New Testament. We have peace with God. And we see why. Now, this, we're just sort of slowly moving through here, but why would God do that, right? If these people are enemies, what do we think, right? When we think about enemies, let's go get them. That's what's on our mind. Um, revenge, you know, judgment, justice. And yet God goes, and we see the, the why, what motivates God to do that. And it's not only sympathy or pity, not just compassion, it's a passion for his own glory. And I think this is where John Piper and his emphasis on um, God's main thing is his glory, he is spot on, he's right on because of verses like this. Why did he do it? He has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So God's number one goal in reconciling this, these sinners in, in the church in Colossae here is to kind of take them as a prize. That, that maybe makes it sound a little petty, but it, it's not at all. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but it's for his own glory that he does it. Ultimately, he's not only having compassion. Is that a compassionate thing? Is that a merciful thing to go to people and extend grace and mercy and love to them? Very much so. But he's doing it in order to buy himself a people that is holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, this is where it gets kind of hairy because I love to talk about grace. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. I love to remind people um, that Jesus has paid for their sins. Um, one of my, I love the song, Christ is Risen, um, where I, I'm sure I won't be able to think of the words right now, where he says, let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame. If you belong to Jesus, he has paid for your sin. You don't have to pay for it. It's not yours to pay. Jesus willingly took all that sin on himself and it's, it's free. So we think about it in accounting terms, right? He says, I will take all your debt, put it in my account, and I will take all my riches and put it in your account. Now that's an amazing exchange. But Paul adds this condition. So this is where... Um, in the conversation after Sunday school last week, uh, we were talking about assurance. You know, where does, how does that play out? Because I grew up in, or as a Christian, at least in my first years, in a church that had come out of circles where if you said the prayer, you're in. The guy that shared the gospel with me, um, I watched his life change, right? He was one of my best friends in high school, and he faithfully shared not only the message of the love of Christ, but the love of Christ to me for years in high school. And yet, when God finally saved me, I, I found out all these other people that my friend had said, oh, well, this girl is a Christian. This is what came up in adult discipleship hour last week. This girl, Robin, she's a Christian. You can date her now. And we had sort of almost dated in high school thing, whatever. I don't want to go into my dating history. Um, 
But the point was, I started to talk to her. I started to spend time with her, and I started to realize, I'd been a Christian for four months at the time. I started to realize, well, this is weird. This girl is going with our old friends and doing drugs and drinking and looks exactly like them. And I told my friend, I'm like, something is wrong. I don't think that she is a Christian. And he said, no, I was there. She said the prayer. She said it. She was crying. She was so emotional. She wanted God's forgiveness so bad. But her life after showed a different, different thing. And so here, when Paul adds this condition, I love grace, and I don't like what he tacks on here where he says, um, he has now reconciled you, if indeed, in verse 23, you continue in the faith. My mind automatically goes to some sort of like works salvation, like a, maybe a Catholic view where, you know, Jesus pays for it, and then you kind of keep it going, you know, by taking communion every week, by the sacraments, or a Mormon view where you do everything you can, right, to make God happy. You do your best. You be a good moral person, and when you die, Jesus pays for the rest. He'll pick up the tag, tab. Um, that's what I think automatically. So I'm uncomfortable with Paul saying this here. I'm very, un- very uncomfortable with that because that's, again, the first thing my mind goes to is that wrong view of salvation. Um, but he, he tells us what exactly this means. If you continue in the faith, how do we do that? By being stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now this hope, when we read it in the New Testament, especially in context like this, is a very future-oriented thing. So we have our past, right, where we're completely alienated from God, separate from him. We have our present where Paul says we have been reconciled with him. Right now I can say that. And we have the future of reconciliation, which says we're waiting for a culmination of this reconciliation. We're waiting for a fulfillment of it. We're waiting for God to completely finish it. And we see this in the New Testament when we read about the blessed hope. So the way that we continue the condition to our salvation here in this reconciliation is resting in God's promise that what he has started, he'll finish now, in Colossians 1, 5, we see that this hope is an important thing for the Colossians. And Paul, as he's praying for them, opening his letter, he says in verse 3, 4, and 5, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So they already have this mentality of the way that they are going to live out their salvation and work out their salvation is by putting their hope in this future fulfillment of reconciliation. So this is, it feels, again, I feel a lot of tension in my brain when I think about this because how can this be reconciled, for lack of a better term, in my head, is how is it that Paul can say, I have been reconciled. Right now, I can say with confidence, I am reconciled to God through Christ's death. And yet, I'm only reconciled if 
I continue in the faith. So we can, I'll just kind of sum up before we apply exactly how can we live this out every day in our lives right now. We have first, you are not a part of God's family. So that's the past. I have a little frowny face next to it. You can put a frowny face if you want in your bulletin. Um, second, Christ reconciled us by his death to seal that reconciliation. Third, he did that for his glory. And fourth, we can only do that if we put our hope in this future fulfillment of the reconciliation. Okay, now, how do we put this into practice? Where does the rubber meet the road here? Because I don't know if any of you follow, probably none of you are nerdy enough to do this. There's sort of a debate, I think Pastor Jeremy has talked about it, between how does God sanctify us? How does he make us holy? There are some who say, okay, you, um, and they all believe in salvation by grace through faith, um, but um, they say, okay, some people just say what you need to do is when you're tempted, you need to remember the finished work of Christ, right? Just remember God's work on the cross, and he will sanctify you through that. So when you're tempted to sin, the emphasis is on put your, fix your mind on Christ 100%, right? And God will sort of take away the temptation. Your appreciation for what God has done will lead you to not sin. Then there's another sort of side of the coin that says, okay, when you're tempted, when you're being sanctified every day, what you need to do is remember the finished work of Christ and remember to obey. So they're really, they're really actually very similar, and I tend to look at them and you know, two sides of the same coin. But they are a little different in their nuance. But here, we have, I really think we have both, honestly. I think it's hard to go one way or the other. But here we see a few practical things. One, if you want to walk as a person who is reconciled past, present, future, you have to remember that at one time you were alienated from God. At one time, you were hostile in mind. At one time, you were doing evil deeds. At one time, you were an enemy of God. Think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul lumps himself in with that. So I don't think Paul was a wild young Jew. He was the opposite, right? He was an aspiring lawkeeper. He wasn't out in nightclubs. He was learning the law. And yet he says that he was by nature a child of wrath. Second, we have to remember that in order to be reconciled with God, there was a price that had to be paid. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they have been now reconciled 
in his body of flesh by his death. And the verses that came to mind were in 1 Peter chapter 1. Where Peter, um, sort of giving, this, giving them a call to holiness, he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, knowing that uh, you're living and trying to be holy, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In order to reconcile us to himself, God paid the ultimate price. If we want to walk in faithfulness to God, if we want to grow in holiness, we have to remember that. We were once alienated from God, and he has reconciled us with the greatest price of all, the blood and body broken of his only son. But that's not enough. I don't want to think that God wants us to beat ourselves up, right? That's the risk. When you talk like this, like, filthy sinners, you're all terrible. Go beat yourselves up. Go walk up the stairs of the Capitol building on your knees 30 times this week and every week until you're holy. That's what the monks tried, right? Um, the, the first really good Latin translation of the Bible uh, was by a guy named Jerome, and he had sort of devoted himself to God and thought, okay, now I'm not going to lust after women. And didn't work. And so he's like, well, I'm going to go out to the desert where there are no women to be found and I'm going to live with these other desert monks and just devote myself completely to thinking about God, to knowing God. And he got out there and he realized, oh, you know what? It seems like the sin is kind of coming with me. It's not coming from out there. It's coming from inside me. And so he thought, oh, now, if I, if I commit myself to really focusing on what God says, I'm going to learn Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And he studied and studied and studied and studied, and that fruit was this best, as far as translations went in Latin, of the Bible. But guess what? Jerome was still a sinner. It didn't work. So I'm not saying go to the desert. I'm not saying move up to the north in a little cabin and just be by yourself with God and on your knees beating yourself with sticks and saying, oh, God, I'm such a sinner, I'm such a sinner. I'm not saying that at all. Because we have to remember, thirdly, that why did Jesus die for us? Why did he reconcile us? He did it for his glory. A verse that I read last week from Titus chapter 2 Titus, or Paul says to Titus, the grace of God in verse 11, chapter 2, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He is not just saying, now go out and obey. He's saying, remember, God purchased you. He bought you for a reason. To be passionate, to be um, kind of on fire 
for the things that he is on fire, that he is passionate about, which is his own glory. We see that in, in Colossians 1. He's, he's bought us so that we would be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And in Ephesians chapter 2, after that scathing, um, the scathing verses we just read where Paul tells us we're all by nature children of wrath and dead in our trespasses and sins, he goes up to say um, in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now this word show here is more like display. So he has, we were enemies, he takes us from being enemies and he reconciles us to himself to be on board with his plan and again the end goal is his glory. In the coming ages, in verse 7, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ. This show, this word is more like display, and it's, it really kind of alludes to an Old Testament trophy room. Now, if you were a king in the Old Testament, what kind of trophies would you have? People, probably, right? If you went to war with a little kingdom, you know, neighboring you. And it back, back then, there were, you know, immense, like Babylon, right? It's just spanning the known world at the time. And yet, it wasn't as if they were all under Nebuchadnezzar directly, but there were little kings in each area that had relations with the king of Babylon where they would give him money and say, okay, just don't wipe us out. We'll give you tribute every year. Okay, here you go. Another hundred dollars, right? Um, and yet, as it conquered other kingdoms around them, they would take the king. So we see it in the Old Testament that sometimes um, they wouldn't kill the king, but they'd take him. And like Saul, here's a good example from uh, 1 Samuel 15, right, with Agag. There's, he was supposed to devote everything to destruction there. And Saul keeps Agag, the king, there to kind of tell the story, right? So think of you're having a dinner party, you're a king, and you think you're all high and mighty, and you want to praise yourself, and you, so you say, go get Agag. Agag will come in. Okay, Agag, tell him how I beat you, you know? Tell him how glorious the battle was, how smart my battle plan was, how great of a leader in general I was. So that's what a trophy room was for them back then, was kings that you would feed and keep, um, who'd come out and sort of tell the stories. Oh, Saul, you were so amazing. Um, that's what we're going to be in heaven, a trophy for Christ, a trophy of grace, a trophy of the immeasurable riches of his grace, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. We were made to display the salvation that we've been given. And we're not going to tell God in heaven, when we're part of that celestial trophy room, and I'm going to say, God, do you remember when I was at Memorial Baptist Church and I preached that mediocre message? It was a, oh, that was good. Weren't you glad that I was there to do that? 
because nobody else could have done it. We're not going to say, wow, Lord, you remember when that homeless guy, um, I gave him a quarter? I didn't have to. My kid wanted a gumball, right? We're not going to be doing that. We're going to be saying, God, I worship you, I thank you, because I was a despicable sinner and yet you reached out and pulled me out of the pit and saved me. And not only did you do that, but you made me like yourself. So when we think about these three things, it's not surprising the condition that Paul adds on, really. If you're focused on these three things, how could you not respond by obedience? If we think about that, I shouldn't be scandalized when I hear Paul say, if indeed you continue in the faith. Because, like James says, faith works, right? We're not saved by faith, but when you're saved, or we're not saved by works, but when you are saved by faith, you work. It works itself out. So it's not an obligation where God is saying through Paul, okay, I gave you grace a little bit. Now, don't screw up. It's not obligation. It's compulsion. He's saying, look at the great grace I've given you. Now go live it out. So that's how Paul can write in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ compels us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. This is not just simply going to church. You know, in that great... Heavenly trophy room, God is not going to be impressed with you when you say, Lord, I went to church every Sunday. I sat in the exact same spot. It was, the pew was formed to me every week. That's how faithful I was. He's not going to care. He's not going to care. What he is going to care about is that you are reconciled to him through the blood of his son. So in our quest to grow in godliness, to obey God, we have to remember where we come from, where we are, and where we're going. Now, how can this future hope fuel what we're doing right now? Because it, it obviously did for the New Testament. You read the New Testament and Christ's return and the, the blessed hope that they talk about is front and center. It's because we live in this tension of Already and not yet. I'm reconciled, right? And yet, is God displeased when I disobey? He is. He's, di- he's displeased in the sense of a father disciplines his son. I'm disappointed in my son when I repeat the same thing to him and he keeps disobeying. But I don't love him any less. When I give him a little tap to remind him, that he's disobeying, it's not out of spite, at least not most of the time. Um, It's because of love. In the Gospels, I love the story of the woman who is um, kind of a, a woman of ill repute, and when Jesus saves her, she begins to serve him and he says this beautiful thing where he says that if, you, if she's forgiven much, so she loves much. 
If you realize that you're forgiven much, you will love others. And that's one remedy for when you feel like you're better than others, when you feel like, oh, those people from Pew 7, they sit there every week and think that's enough, They're, but they don't get off their keister and do anything. That's your chance to, to put, put it back in perspective and realize that you were a child of wrath, that you were a child of disobedience, saved by the same grace that saves them, reconciled by the same body of death that reconciles them. And lastly, as we get ready to, to participate in the Lord's Supper here, uh, Paul says this really unique thing, right? When he says that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes. And here in these verses, we see that when we live out this reconciliation, past, present, and future, it's a missionary life that we're living. The proclamation of the gospel is front and center. Paul says, if indeed, in verse 23, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has this gospel, this hope of the gospel, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This fits with the message I preached two weeks ago perfectly, doesn't it? Right? The Gadarene demoniac. What did he do? He became sort of the first missionary, in a lot of senses, in a Gentile area. Jesus said, go, tell all the people what the Lord has done for you. And when we're living in light of these truths, how can you not do that, right? It's the same if you are, um, feel like it's sort of a heavy weight to bear evangelism, right? It's because you're not seeing the gospel right. It's a matter of being free. And when you're freed from something, you want to tell people about it. So I'm not, telling, I'm not here to, you know, I'm not coming with a stick to say, hey, memorial, let's start doing something. Let's start doing more. I'm here to tell you, let's seek this God of grace. Let's seek this God of mercy, this God of the gospel, of the hope that we received and take that hope to others. Okay, let's pray before we get ready for the Lord's Supper. And would the, the men please come up to serve the elements. Lord, I thank you that you gave me an opportunity this week to remember um, where I come from. I thank you, Lord, that the, there are no shades of grace in Christianity, there are no some who needed more forgiveness than others. We were all lost. We were all dead in our transgressions. We were all by nature children of wrath. And yet you, in your grace, in your mercy, in your desire to, to have your fame proclaimed in all the universe, sent your son to die for us. And we are eternally grateful for that. Lord, those of us who have believed in Jesus Christ and who know you, understand what that costs you because we know the depths of our sin. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we examine our hearts now, getting ready to take communion, that you would help us to be honest with ourselves and be honest with you about our sin and confess. That's all confession means is to agree with God. And so in confessing sin, we agree, Lord, that our sin is sinful. 
and it's despicable before you. And yet we don't do it to um, self-deprecate, but we do it to exalt the grace of Christ that saved us, that could have saved us from so much more. It is infinite in its power. So Lord, I pray that as we go out this week, as we go out to our work, to our family, that we would be prepared through this message that you've given us through these verses and also through the Lord's Supper to proclaim your death until you come, Jesus. Help us to be faithful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.